0: We come to the sermon this morning We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, Looking at verses 26 through 31 So if you would now Give your attention to God's word in Hebrews chapter 10 I'll begin reading at verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately After receiving the knowledge of the truth There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins But a fearful expectation For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that you guide us, that you give us instructions. And Lord, even warnings as heavy as this. I pray, Lord. That as I preach your word this morning, that you would move me out of the way, that you would speak to your people by the power of your Spirit in a way that they can receive and that you would allow for there to be conviction, that you would convict and also convince those who are blood-bought, those who are born again, that they are resting in your work alone for their salvation. God, I pray that you would you would bring this to the ears and hearts of your hearers this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so if you're here last week, we talked about assurance. And now we're into this thick, sort of heavy, weighty stuff. And it's like, oh, man, what happened? You know, there was a, we left off on a, on a good place there. And now here we are talking about some difficult things. I worry, honestly, as a, as a Christian man raising Christian men, and as a pastor charged with ministering to men, women, and children in the church, uh, that I will see this happen, Uh, apostasy, that I will see people I love who had me convinced that they were Christians eventually turn their backs on Jesus. I know I'm not in control. God is but that doesn't mean I won't experience surprise and disappointment when this kind of thing happens. And as optimistic as I generally am, I do expect I will see this kind of thing and probably more than once. I know people uh, will desert me. I mean, that's, that's Ministry 101, right? I mean, that's, that you, you know, if nobody told you before now, <laughs> right? That, that's gonna happen. You can't go into ministry thinking that won't happen. And I can handle that, but people deserting Jesus? It's a heavy thing. These warnings against apostasy tell us that's a reality. That that, that kind of thing isn't just possible, it happens. And a lot of the time, the reason I think people do that is because they have misunderstood what kind of God God says He is. This passage tells us, tells us God is not someone to be meddled with. He will not be fooled, He will not be mocked. Sometimes people imagine God as one-dimensional, right? God is love. That's what they've been told. That's what they, they, they grew up hearing. And so there's sort of this escape clause. They think, well, you know, I don't know if I really believe all the stuff in the Bible. I don't know if I really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he performed all these miracles. I don't know if I really believe that. I mean, I think I believe God exists. I'd like to think that he does. But even if he doesn't and I go on living however I want, it's cool. He'll understand because He's love. God is love. God is love, but God is also holy, which means He's the kind of God that is and does things that make us uncomfortable. We look at this passage and we see God is the kind of God that judges. He's a fury of fire that consumes He's impartial in his judgment. Catch that? He will not show mercy where mercy is not warranted. He is the kind of God who punishes, verse 29, the kind who is outraged, it says. He is vengeful and frightening. That's the kind of God God is. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the the thrust of this passage. And the main idea this morning is the gospel comes with a warning label. There'll be two points this morning as we look at the kind of God God is. The first one, the gospel is not a take it or leave it proposition. The gospel is not a take it or leave it proposition. The second point, the judgment of God is more severe than man's. We'll see both of those unfold as we move through the passage together. The warning here is one of many in the book of Hebrews. It's a warning against apostasy. And as difficult as it is to hear, it's nonetheless true. And I want to remind you, these words, as harsh as they are, they're offered in love. They're offered from a place of love and genuine concern for the hearers, right? The author's in effect saying, there's a cliff over there. And if you keep playing around over there by that cliff, there's no coming back. Stay here where it's safe. You can't afford to be careless about this. That's what he's been trying to tell them. And remember, these are uh, first century Christians who left Judaism for Christ. And now they're thinking about doubling back. They're thinking about going back to Judaism because times is hard. Christian life is hard. The author's taking great pains to show them Christ and all of his glory and power and majesty and his love for them and says, look, don't, don't sleep on this news. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Eternity is at stake. That's where we are now in the author's address to them. Eternity is at stake. Don't think for a minute that God will let you slide if you don't take this message seriously. That's what he's saying. Don't think for a minute God is the kind of God that crushes his only son in the place of sinners and says, take it or leave it. In effect, what he says, take it or take my wrath. Take Jesus and live, or I will get even. I will repay, he says, verse 30. And there's not enough dying in any one of us for the job to ever be done. You'll suffer for all of eternity. That's the kind of God God is, y'all. Have you come to grips with that? I know many of you or most of you and know that you have. That makes sense to you. Others of you may hear that and think, I mean, yeah, it's in the Bible, so it's got to be true. But it's like a a splinter in just the right part of your finger where you never really feel it, you know. It doesn't bother you until you grab onto something, then you remember it's there, and you remember you don't like it. You wish it weren't there. What I'm saying is some of you may know God is like this, but you wish he weren't. But what, what I want to say to you this morning uh, with, with a great deal of humility is that you'd be that way too if you were as holy as God is, but you're just not. None of us is. And none of us is as compassionate as God is either. And so what we have to realize is if sin weren't this serious... If it didn't deserve all this wrath and judgment and fire and fury, we wouldn't need Jesus. But we do. If the stakes weren't this high, Jesus would not have had to take all this punishment and drink this awful cup of God's wrath, but he did. That's what the author wants to bring their attention back around to now, that this salvation Jesus offers, it's a salvation from God's wrath. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Take-it-or-leave-it implies that I have an option to turn something down and then walk away with with nothing, to leave with nothing. But that's not an option God gives. You can take Jesus as the propitiation for your sins, or you can take God's wrath due for your sin. There's no leaving empty-handed. Everyone leaves this life with prize or punishment. So as we get into this this morning, as we get uncomfortable with the outworking of the results of God's attribute of holiness and see and hear things that that freak us out, remember this, the gospel comes with a warning label. Some of y'all might remember a few months ago, I had a really bad ear infection. And I had to take antibiotics. And on the label, it told me I had to complete the whole bottle. I had to take the whole thing. I couldn't start taking it and then just stop taking it a few days later. The gospel is like that. You take all of it or you get none of the benefit. The gospel comes with a warning label, and this is the warning. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So there's point number one, and I've said it already. This isn't take it or leave it. The gospel is not a take it or leave it proposition. Look here at what he says. You don't get, and what you do get. If you go on sinning deliberately, which proves your profession of faith is is false and the spirit is not in you what you don't get is a sacrifice for your sins so left in your sins what you do get is judgment no one is leaving empty handed it's not take it or leave it he says if you receive the knowledge of the truth and go on sinning deliberately there's no hope for you okay and it's not an accident okay it's not a mistake it's a choice that's why apostasy is so serious It's not someone who who never heard the gospel. This is someone who has received the knowledge of the truth, it says there. It's someone who heard the gospel over and over again and benefited from the blessings that the covenant people of God and the church enjoy together, and they chose sin instead. This is someone who willfully embraces sin despite knowing what Jesus did to save them from God's wrath because of it. That person... Draw a circle around that person. That person is an apostate. An important point of clarification here, an apostate's not just someone who says they're a Christian and still sins, okay? Because that's all of us, right? All of us. He who says he is without sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. That's 1 John 5, or I'm sorry, one eight. And this is why we use all of Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? So that we can understand these things. Because if it were true, right, that anyone who says they're a Christian then goes on the rest of their lives without ever sinning ever again, right? Uh, a whole whole life lived long of of no sinning whatsoever. Well, we know we'd all be in trouble. You know, because we sinned yesterday. Some of y'all, some of y'all sinned on the way here this morning. <laughs> But that's not what this is talking about. This isn't just someone who sins, okay? This is someone who instead of being grieved over their sin, rather than mourning their sin, being broken over it and battling it, instead they're comfortable in it. Holiness is not home for them. Sin is. Remember when we were in the uh, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount? It's It's a while ago now, actually. But you remember Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We said then, didn't we, that it's the ones like the penitent tax collector who recognize their spiritual poverty, that beat their chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's it's those. It's those who see their sin and mourn. It's those to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. It's those who shall be comforted. God says. That's not who this passage is talking about. This isn't someone who mourns their sin. They welcome it with open arms. They justify it. They're not hiding from it and fleeing from it. They're embracing it. They're not stumbling over it from time to time the way that we all do. They're swimming in it. So the way we understand what the author is saying about the apostate and the warning he's given here is we try to understand what he's been saying all along. And what he's been saying all along is cling to Christ, right? And what he's saying now is you can't cling to Christ and hold on to sin. Those who truly belong to Christ are those who are burdened by their sin. And Christ removes that unwanted burden. And so I'd ask all of you here this morning, some of you I know and some of you I I don't, know it all or very well. And so I'd ask you, are you who he came to save? Have you been weighed down by your sin and seen the damage that it does to you, that it does to others? Have you feared the Lord's judgment for it and asked him to take it away from you? If you have, then you're in good hands because Christ came to save sinners. Sinners. That's who he came to save. The gospel is good news for sinners. It's not good news for people who don't think they're sinners or don't think sin is any big deal. It's bad news for them. It's a warning for them. The gospel comes with a warning label, and this is what it reads. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So one of the things we find out here is that the gospel isn't a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. There's all this good news for sinners, And the author has given it. He's been giving it to him, laying it all out for him. He says, this Jesus, right, this Jesus that you've heard about, that I've been telling you about, he's more impressive than angels. He's a better leader than than Moses or Joshua, a better high priest than Aaron, a better sacrifice than bulls and goats. He's blazed a trail heavenward for those who believe in him and brings you into the family of God. But if you turn all that down, there's no good news. In fact, there's not only no good news, there's bad news. The gospel has a warning label. The next point is God's judgment is more severe than man's. We see that beginning in verse 28 Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Let's stop there for just a minute. According to the law of Moses, anyone guilty of breaking a law deserving of the death penalty was surely, absolutely, certainly put to death without blinking. Show no partiality. God's people were called to judge with a righteous judgment. They were commanded to not pervert justice. You can find all of this in Deuteronomy 16 and 17, by, by the way, and that's, that's where the author's turning their attention now, actually, in Deuteronomy 17. God says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That sounds kind of familiar to us. We have similar laws, right? And Yeah, our, governor, our, our laws didn't make that up. You know, they borrowed it from God. And hopefully, we we'll hold on to that one, right? We're going to keep that one. So, idea of being innocent until proven guilty. But anyway, the idea here is that the, author, that the author's trying to get across is consider the strictness of the judgment there. No mercy. If you are found guilty based on the testimony of two to three witnesses, Dunsky, game over. Card gets pulled, you're checking out. No partiality strict judgment okay? now consider how much worse and certain is the punishment deserved by someone who spurns christ that's what that says there in verse 29 trampled underfoot the son of god we say well what's that look like well it can look like someone who's who's toying with God by saying they believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then continue delighting themselves in uh, a lifestyle of sin rather than holiness. They're delighting themselves in, in the world and worldly things instead of in the things of God. What it sounds like is someone saying, and you may have heard this before, I used to believe all that stuff. I did. Yeah, I believed all that. I was a Christian. I believed all that. But I finally grew up. You know, I grew up. I grew out of it. I finally came out of that bubble of Christianity and I I woke up to a wide, wonderful, wide-open world of diversity where everyone can be right in their own eyes uh, as long as they just stay true to themselves. That's mockery. That's this person has been so near to Christ and outwardly a part of His covenant people and they know better, don't they? That's what makes that so awful. That's spurning Christ. That's trampling underfoot the Son of God. Some people will still try to hold on to the title Christian and do that. And others would just abandon it altogether, don't want to have anything to do with it. And the reality is the first is actually more dangerous because that person usually takes more people with them. Yeah? The, the one who casts off the whole thing is just silly and foolish. They, they usually only harm themselves. But the one who still dabbles in theology and still has some interest in God usually leads people off into dangerous doctrines and does more damage to the church. There's a warning here for you guys, okay? It just isn't a side. Let me just say, in this information age that we live in now, you can get so much Christian teaching at any time and any place due to the advent of the internet and social media and so forth. So be careful, right? Be careful. We cannot afford to be naive here. All that shimmers is not gold. I joked last week that the Christian bookstore is one of the most dangerous places a Christian can go. And it's true. The same is true of preachers and ministries with large online platforms and all the bells and whistles. There's so much access to Christian teachers today that we cannot afford to be naive. The truth is, and God's Word tells us, some of those people are wolves who devour sheep. There are those in this passage that this passage is talking about. But instead of being altogether disinterested in the things of God, right, they still wear the jersey while they play for the other team. They have a false confidence in Christ. A better way to say it is they have a confidence in a false Christ. And they teach others to do the same. They do a lot of damage. This passage tells us there's no confidence for the one who rejects Jesus and there's stricter judgment for them. That's the point that we're on. God's judgment is more severe than man's. Under God's law, man is punished justly and strictly, put to death, without question, without blinking, for things like murder, for, for uh, rape, for kidnapping, a number of other things. But there's an even stricter judgment, he's saying, an eternal judgment for those who turn their back on his son. You think about Jesus' parable of the tenants. You remember this, right? There's this... Uh, Uh, A master that that plants a vineyard, he hires guys to work in the vineyard. And then the master sends a servant to come collect the fruits of that vineyard in its season. And then what do the workers do to the the servant that he sent? They beat him up. They give him a proper pounding. So what's the master do? He sends more servants. What do the workers do? They beat them up too. So what's he finally do? He sends his son, his own son. And what do they do to him? They kill him. They kill him. Now part of Jesus' lesson in that parable is there is necessarily and rightly a stricter judgment deserved there. He says at the end of that parable, what do you think the owner will do to those tenants when he comes? The author of Hebrews says something similar here. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. There's a stricter judgment for those who have experienced the blessings of being part of the visible church and who have rejected Jesus. They're sinners, same as anyone else, but they're turning down the only sacrifice for sin that counts, trampling underfoot the Son of God. And see, this is ringing especially true in their ears. Get more water. This is ringing especially true in their ears because remember, they're used to the old sacrificial system. Uh, So for his immediate audience, he's making sure they understand there's not some other sacrifice that's going to save you. And that's true for anyone. You don't have to be a Jew thinking there's another sacrifice that might count. You just need to realize that with no sacrifice for sins, with no mediator between you and God, there is a God who judges you and judges you in your sin. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. And what's worse is if you've received the free offer of the gospel and rejected it, the judgment is more severe. It's worse punishment for you than it would be for somebody else who had not not received all of that light. What the author says here is that whether you like it or not, God is the kind of God that will do that. Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The author says, don't forget who God says he is. Is he vengeful? You better believe it. Is he a consuming fire? You better believe it. Is his wrath poured out on sinners? You better believe it. Has he made a way for you to escape his fierce and just wrath by sending his son to die in the place of sinners? You better believe it. If you don't, hear me, friends. If you don't, all of that judgment, all of that wrath is yours and you will bear it. Christ stood in that place and allowed himself to be judged in the place of sinners. If you don't accept the only means given to you by which you can escape God's wrath, don't be surprised and complain when it lands on your head and you're buried into outer darkness for all of eternity. God will do it. That's the kind of God he is. He judges sin. And many people would say, well, I'd never serve a God like that. Then perish. You know, I I used to say that. You know, I try to remind you guys from time to time, I wasn't always who I am today. In fact, who I am today and what I value most surprises me. I remember being so angry with my dad when he became a Christian. The only reason I ever ended up in South Carolina was because I was trying to talk him out of his Christianity. I went along with him to a Bible study one time where I heard about this God who left the sun in the sky an extra day so one group of people could wipe out an entire other group of people. And I said, How dare he? How dare God do that? How dare anyone believe it? I asked my dad, how could you ever serve a God like that? I would never, I would never serve a God like that. I said that. Those words left these lips. But one Lord's day, I heard the word of God preached. And the Holy Spirit opened my ears and my heart to receive it. And I was cut to the quick. And I left that day knowing two things. God is not who I thought he was, and neither am I. I left knowing God is who he says he is, and that's bad news for me. I I can complain all I want, but the truth is there is wrath stored up for sinners. There's nothing that will make that any less true, but here's something that's equally true, y'all. Here's something that's equally true. There is grace upon grace for sinners who believe on the Son that He has sent. God is just and God is merciful. Those two are not incompatible. They meet in the person of Jesus Christ. The author says this is who God is. This is what He's like. This is the kind of God God is. This is why we need Christ. Christ. Apostates have greater judgment because Christ is offered to them that way and the gospel over and over again, Sunday in and Sunday out, and they reject him. The person with the privileges and blessings of being in the church, surrounded by the gospel and God's people, the judgment is stricter. It just is. So I want to show you one more thing on that point. He continues there in verse 29. About the stricter judgment. And then he goes on to describe the person as someone who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. You saw me perform two baptisms at the beginning of the service Mm -hmm. baptism of infants. You know why? Because God says they are holy. He says that in 1 Corinthians 7 14, that the children of at least one believing parent are regarded by God Himself as holy, as set apart. Set apart from what? The world. They don't belong to the general population of the world, they belong in covenant with God. They're not guilty until proven innocent. They're innocent until proven guilty. Now, will they be covenant keepers or covenant breakers? We trust the promises of God. We believe on the promises of God. God knew what he was doing when he gave those children to those parents. He knew what his intentions were for them, that they would be brought up in a family of believers, brought up in a wider family of the church that happens to be this one that they would hear and know the truth of the gospel. But here's something that alerts us that there is such a thing as someone who can profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, set apart. We know someone cannot lose their salvation. Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep and no one can snatch them out of his hand. But we also know someone can live with Jesus, eat with Jesus, Sleep near Jesus, work with Jesus, and in the end, betray Jesus, Judas. And we know what happened to him. There's no such thing as close enough when it comes to eternity. You are either in or you're out. The gospel comes with a warning label. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I was told when I was in seminary by more than one professor, you better remember that verse. That's what's going to keep you on track theologically. That's what's going to keep you humble. That's a verse that keeps you from going over the edge. And what they meant when they said that is, be careful, God isn't whoever you think He is. He's not however you want Him to be. This is who He is. This is what He's like. This is the kind of God God is. Be warned. Warnings like this aren't bad things. They're good things. We've said that before as we looked at some some of the previous warnings in the book of Hebrews. They're there to keep us on track, right? And that's precisely what the author's trying to do. So they're not bad things. They're good things for us. They're designed to keep us on track. But they're heavy, aren't they? Those of you that were here last week, don't you just want to go back to last week's sermon and, and cuddle up there? We do. We, we want that assurance. We, we want God to speak kindly to us, and He does to His children. But look, the bad news, okay, these warnings, they're what make the good news that much sweeter. We have to be able to recognize it as that. If we don't know what we're saved from, why should we be convinced we've been saved from anything at all or that we need saving? But let's end on some good news anyway. I know we need it. I do. (laughs) And if the enemy has prevented your ears from hearing it until now, I pray that it sinks in today. Maybe for some of you for the first time. All of this judgment we're talking about, all of this wrath, all of this terror, all of this fear of punishment and destruction, all of that has been swallowed up in the death of Christ. For sinners, for those who have believed in His name. So don't let the bad news be your news. Don't let the bad news be your news. It doesn't have to be. That doesn't have to be you. So hear me say this morning, like the author is telling them, don't turn away. Don't play around the edges. Stay the course. Be mindful. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Because Jesus took the wrath that sinners deserve. What the author has been talking about already all this time is true. He is the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. He is our great high priest who represents us perfectly before God the Father. And he intercedes for us continually. He pleads our case because he has opened the way for us to come to God with a clean conscience. Remember we talked about that? I know y'all didn't. You weren't here. Those of you who were, you remember we talked about the clean conscience. We can come before a holy God with a clean conscience, sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. We have that. We can approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence because he has welcomed us in as sons and daughters. So if all of this is heavy on you, these warnings, they frighten you, that's good in a way, right? You're paying attention. I'd be more worried if they didn't bother you. If you're like... That's not me. You you think about when Jesus was gathered together with his disciples and he says at the the last supper, he says, one of you will betray me, right? They weren't all like, it's not me. And they weren't all glaring over there at Judas either. They were thinking, is it me? Is it me, Lord? It's a good thing. Don't allow yourself to be frightened in a way that makes you hide from God, though. First of all, because you can't hide. But most importantly, because you'd be missing the beauty of everything the author has laid out for you already. You are welcomed as a child into the loving arms of this father who spared no expense to redeem you. His love came at a cost, though. We have to remember that. We have to be reminded of that. We can't forget it. Someone had to pay, pay dearly, and it wasn't you. The horror of that thought shouldn't drive you away from him, but should drive you to him faster, more frequently, more closely, and more sincerely. Look to Christ and look again. Keep your focus there and you will persevere to the end you will not be in danger of falling away. We're about to sing, there's a fountain filled with blood. Listen to these lyrics. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. As we sing that, I want you to remember, Jesus came to die for sinners. He didn't come for people who had their act together or were most of the way there. There is no such thing as close enough in eternity. He came to die for desperate sinners. And if you know this morning that you have sinned against this holy God who is a consuming fire and have been having been confronted now with what he's like in this text that we've just looked at, that he judges and punishes sin, that he repays sin, and that there is a stricter judgment for those who have heard and then rejected that good news. Would you find that blood all the more precious and open your mouths and sing? Knowing and appreciating what Christ has done for you, keeping your eyes fixed on him, means knowing the awful wrath of God that he's spared you from. How precious is the blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we have heard a hard truth this morning. We've seen what your word tells us elsewhere, that the heart is deceitful above all else. It's true that we can convince ourselves of all sorts of things and even convince ourselves that you will deal lightly with sinners. You won't. You will by no means pardon the guilty. Instead, Father, you sent your Son to die and bear that guilt for many. It's through the blood of our Redeemer that we find forgiveness. And my prayer this morning, God, is that all of us would leave here knowing what you are like, that you are holy, and that you are love, that you are just. And you are merciful. We rejoice that you have sent your Son to die in the place of sinners and that without Him there is no hope. Help us then, God, to know our need of Him, to be those who mourn over our sin and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Help us by the power of your Spirit to endure to the end and to finish well, never wavering from the hope that is within us, never turning our foot to the right or to the left of the paths of righteousness you lead us in for your namesake following our good shepherd into glory, to live in your presence forever. God, we ask this in the name that is above all names. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.